Let's continue in prayer. I know we just prayed, but I want to pray some specifics here in about these next few minutes. Lord, first of all, this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community, praying for Ridgecrest Baptist Church, for Matt Beasley and his family. I want to pray first for Matt as a worshiper. I uh, just pray that you would uh, overwhelm him with the good news and the gospel, that he would be fueled by that, that he would be satisfied with what you've done for us in Christ, and that he would, uh, that you would guard him from treating the pastorate like it's a job, but that it would be a true calling, that he would enjoy it, that he, uh, even in the labor and even in the difficulty and the pain, that he would count it a joy and a privilege to be a messenger of your good news and a shepherd to your people. I pray for his marriage, Lord, I just knowing uh, firsthand the toll that it takes on, um, on a marriage ministry, I, I just uh, lift them up. I pray that you would guard them from the wiles of Satan. I pray that you would protect them from um, even the harm that God's people can, can bring to one another. I just pray that they would have a um, resilience, uh, an endurance, a perseverance uh, that would all be fueled by worship and joy, and uh, that we would ultimately... Uh, the Beasleys, the McGraws, um, every other pastor, family, um, um, the Suttons, the Cardwells, that all of us would really be fueled by the scandal of the gospel and the good news and the marvel that we get to walk with your people. Uh, but I pray that for every church in this community, knowing that the pastor is the first step to really fouling up a church. Um, just pray for Matt. Pray for uh, what's in store for this church as well as they've approved uh, the selection of elders to be an elder-led church. I pray for wisdom and how that moves forward. I, I'm celebrating with others that they have made this decision, knowing how you've blessed our church and giving us plural leadership design. I'm just, uh, I can't imagine pastoring without it, and I'm thankful that uh, Ridgecrest is moving in that direction. I pray that you would guide them wisely and um, that you'd be glorified in how that works out. Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, uh, I pray that you would guide us. I uh, confess, as I've confessed last week, that I have a very human desire to impress, um, to do a good job, to be approved in, in, uh, in how I preach, and I want to put all those things to death. If I have to be made a fool today for your message to be clear, to be impacting, to be used, Lord, I pray you would do whatever you need to do to me, and I um, uh, halfway scared to even offer that, but I, I offer it because I want I want the work to be done, I want the heart to be softened, I want the message to go forth, whatever it may cost me. I'm um, thankful for the privilege and the opportunity. I'm um, I confess in front of this people, feeling frail and feeble and inadequate and insufficient for this for preaching, especially in Isaiah. And I'm thankful that ultimately the Holy Spirit is the ultimate preacher and the ultimate messenger and the ultimate heart worker. I'm thankful that's not up to me or my um, abilities. Um, I pray for the people this morning. I pray for real attentiveness. I pray for real honesty with ourselves, um, a um, celebration of what we have in Christ as well. And turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple of summers ago, I had the opportunity to go to Europe with my family on our sabbatical. We, uh, we saved up for like 10 years for this thing. For, to send five people or for five people to go to Europe, just the airfare alone is going to be pretty significant. But when you add in where you're going to stay and how you're going to get about and what you're going to see, it was, it was, uh, 
something we had to save up for. It was a big event in the life of our family. It's one that we really looked forward to for a number of years, and I think something we're going to look back over, look back on over the years as something that we really enjoyed. One of the things that surprised us, um, we have, or two of our three kids are visually impaired. Evan is our oldest, Luke is our middle. Evan doesn't need this, but Luke needs this. You don't see him using it in this church building because it's a very familiar context for him. He knows where the chairs are, and he knows where the doors are and things like that. He knows where the bathroom is. But when you're traveling abroad, there's a few reasons why you need to use this is because you're walking on uneven, uneven surfaces. You don't know where the curbs are. You don't know where the doors are. But also so others can identify that, they, that he can't see you because otherwise he'll just plow right into somebody. So this is a visual marker for other people as well, but it's also an instrument for him to navigate. One of the things that surprised us in Europe that we haven't experienced here necessarily is that people will go out of their way to take care of you if you have this. And I mean in a shocking way, especially in Italy. It happened to us in Scotland, especially in Italy. You know, you're on a subway or something like that, and people would get out of their chair. An old lady would get up and have Luke sit down, and Luke is like embarrassed, but like she'd be mad if he didn't, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, free admission to the museums because he's got this, things like that. We would have missed our flight back from uh, Ireland had Luke not had this because we entered a room where there were probably a thousand people waiting in line to go through a process that we were told would just take a couple of hours. It looked like it would take more like four or five. We went to the front of the line with this joker. We began to call this the golden talisman. And we thought, from here on out, we have to carry this wherever we go, even if we don't need it. I thought about getting one for myself. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now, I'm going to park this for now as I ask you a question to consider. Let's see about where I can lean this thing, because we're going to need it later. A question to consider. Do you think it's possible that you could use your religious activities as a golden talisman? I'm going to let that question sit on you as I read our passage and we climb into it. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10 through verse 20 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Seek to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We're back in the courtroom this week. Last week, if you were here, then you know that we spent our time in a courtroom. I invited you into a courtroom setting with dark oak, with leather, with a big gavel, with a big bench, with someone sitting in orange, with a judge sitting in, in, in his chair, with a prosecuting attorney, and I introduced to you all of those people, and we became acquainted with who they are. I want to just sort of bring those 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 people back into the story for a moment as we continue on looking at this passage. This passage began last week in verse 2 with God as father and judge in the courtroom. The calling of witnesses started right from the beginning and the witnesses in this courtroom were heaven and earth. And the prosecuting attorney was a man named Isaiah. He's presenting evidence in these first few passages that we looked at last week for their ultimate charge of rebellion against God. And the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, sit wearing orange, guilty, and facing severe punishment. We ended last week after really a difficult first few verses with the wonderful encouragement and promise in verse 9 that there will in fact be a few survivors. Unlike Sodom and Gomorrah that was completely leveled, there will in fact in their case be a few survivors that we called last week a remnant. We pick up in verse 10 with Isaiah speaking. We're going to work our way through the passage, sort of exposing some of the luggage, considering unpacking the luggage, exposing the furniture in the room, and then we're really just going to see if we can bring this home for us. Beginning in verse 10, this is Isaiah speaking. The only verse in the text that we're looking at today where Isaiah is actually speaking, the prosecuting attorney, he says, hear the word of the Lord. You can imagine those in orange And here the prosecuting attorney says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. We don't know exactly when in Isaiah's ministry that he wrote these first five chapters. They may have been toward the end of his 30, 40, 50 year ministry because they seem to provide a big picture, big sweeping view of the problem in in Israel in oracles. Oracles are somewhat like a prophetic passage, but they're less specific. A prophecy you can hear and you can look for a specific down the road that fulfills that. Oracles are bigger picture and less definite. And these first five chapters are like a preface for the rest of the book. The beginning of his ministry begins in chapter six. If you want to begin chronologically, that's where you'd begin. But these first five chapters are a big picture view, a bird's eye view of a 40-year ministry where in this case it's likely at the time that they're hearing these words, there's likely the sense in Israel that they would not have been good listeners. The reason they wouldn't have been good good listeners likely is because Babylon was a hundred something years away or more. The Babylonian exile had not even come close to happening. Babylon who at this point? The only threat they would have experienced at this point at all would have been Assyria. And Assyria was really putting the pressure on the north, on Israel. So there's a good chance that these people, as we considered last week, were fat and sleek 
Jeshurun that had no use for a message like this. They likely even considered their time of peace as a time of blessing from God. Isaiah who? Oracle what? They were fat and sleek and in their minds blessed and likely not listening. And this passage begins with a command. Hear. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of, of Sodom. Give, he give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's saying here as he now used them as sort of an illustration where he's actually calling them Sodom and Gomorrah, saying that their sin is no different from the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Isaiah calls them to hear the Lord's word and to heed and hear his teaching. The word there for teaching is the word in Hebrew, Torah, which means law. In verse 11 through 15 is now God speaking. God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He says here something really surprising. He says, I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs, of goats. And if you're really paying attention, if you've really read all of your Old Testament and you've read like Leviticus, then you ought to be asking the question here, since when? Leviticus at this point is about 700 years old, 800 years old. The sacrificial system is about 700 or 800 years old, which happened to come from God. You would have to be asking the question, since when do you not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats? God gave that to them. It was a God-given, God-approved way to deal with sin in the camp. It was a way for holiness to dwell with sinful Man, and now he's not delighting in those things. Man, we got to get to the bottom of this. Let's first of all consider what they're doing. Just from this passage, there's some things that we can draw out. There's lots of religious activity going on. I want you to note this. Just pay attention to this. Consider this. There's a multitude of sacrifices, not just a few, not a wee few, but a multitude of sacrifices. There are burnt offerings of rams. Okay. There's burnt offerings of the fat of well-fed beasts. You're not offering skinny offerings, one-eyed, buck-toothed lambs. I mean, we're talking about some really nice offerings here, some rams and some well-fed beasts. There's blood of all varieties of sacrificial animals. Things are looking pretty good. Their, their appearance before him is actually Filling his courts, so it's like high attendance Sunday, except it's on Sabbath. Every, every week. <laughs> I mean, things are looking really good. We're looking at these things saying, man, they're really doing a great job. They're bringing their offerings, it says. I mean, the, the, the coffers are full. <laughs> There's some good stuff going on. They're burning incense. Okay. 
They're, they're worshiping at the new moon and the Sabbath and the prescribed feasts. I mean, this is all from this passage. They're calling their convocations. Their, so, their assemblies are solemn. They're not sitting around joking and token and, you know, doing silly things, blowing milk out of their nose. They're, they're doing real things. It sounds like they're real worship. I mean, it's not like Frankie's Fun Park. They're solemn assemblies. They're practicing the prescribed feast. Their hands are spread and lifted in prayers. And not just a few prayers. The passage says many prayers. All right, let those hit you for a minute. Just at face value, let those hit you and go, wow, we have really got to figure this thing out. Here it is during a time of relative peace and prosperity. Consider these descriptors. It sounds like they're doing lots of religious things. Whatever God is not delighting in, we have to appreciate that there is certainly a substantial amount of religious activity. Agreed? (laughs) Yeah. I need the kids back in here this week, so they'll go, yeah. Lots of religious stuff going on. From the sound of it, too, they're pretty meticulous. It's not sloppy worship, it doesn't sound like. It's not like Nadab and Abihu going freestyle and offering strange fire. It sounds like they're actually doing the prescribed things, observing them the way that he told them to observe them, practicing them the way they were to be practiced and offered in Leviticus. There's a multitude of these things, and they're well-fed beasts. So what in the world could be wrong with that? Well, I found a great quote from John Calvin this week. It says, Judge not by largeness of number unless you prefer chaff to wheat. Judge not by largeness of number unless you prefer chaff to wheat. Consider some of the other descriptors that come from this passage. God has had enough of their offerings. God does not delight in the blood of their offerings. He views their attendance, their high attendance Sabbaths as trampling his courts. He counts their offerings as vain. How would you like to, to, to hear that about your offerings as you're giving sacrificially and often? And you find out it's vanity. He counts their incense as an abomination. He cannot endure their solemn assemblies. You don't read many things that God cannot do. So when you actually see something that says cannot, you should really go, wow, now that is pretty profound. He cannot endure their solemn assemblies. He's had enough. In fact, he says, my soul hates these feasts. They're a burden and they actually make him weary. God, weary? His soul hates them. He hides his eyes from their praying, and he can't even look at the prayer. Think about that for a minute. Just consider all that they were doing and considering how, consider how it's being received. Why would God respond and feel this way about their ample, their regular, and their prescribed worship? The key to the problem, to solving the problem, is in verse 13. Look at it. Verse 13, part B. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. This is the root of the problem right here. 
iniquity, and solemn assembly. There's a disparity between the religious activities and the sin of the people. See, the problem, let me develop for you the problem that was going on in this time. There was an understanding that the way that a sacrifice worked, when they presented a ram or a bull or a goat, was that the animal became the worshiper's representative. Okay? Substitutionary atonement. It's a beautiful picture of it. The animal became the worshiper's representative if the proper procedures were followed. That's the way they were believing. That's the way they were thinking. That's the way they were moving. If the proper procedures were followed, the sacrifice could actually become the sinner and the death of the sacrifice would become the replacement death of the worshiper. And they apparently began to treat this like it was just about the procedure. Like it was just about getting that offering just fat enough and just offering it just so and just following procedures. There's no repentance involved. There's no change of behavior involved. There's no change of heart or heart involved at all. It's not necessary. What was necessary was just the procedure. And the sacrifice was treated like a golden talisman. Some of y'all watch Survivor. You know how that show goes, Survivor. It's been on like 30 seasons now, hasn't it? Like 30 years or something like that. I mean, some of these kids, that, some of these people that watched it as, as little kids are now on it. But you know how the thing goes. They go to tribal council and a guy could be a complete jerk. It has nothing to do with how he's lived or how he's moved or whether he's even liked by the other people in the tribe. If he happened to dig up one of those little immunity idols next to a little tree in the jungle, then he pulls it out at tribal council and says, ha, 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 I got my immunity idol. And he's covered. And it appears that the nation of Israel is treating the sacrificial system and the sacrifices and the religious activity and all these things that God has given them like, Here's my immunity idol. <laughs> what they failed to realize is that the ceremonial activities were outward expressions of an inward heart and life change in the worshiper if they were done correctly. The capacity to make these offerings without the heart being involved was their problem. And they may have borrowed this from the neighbors because apparently it was common within these pagan religions that surrounded them to view these offerings that they made as completely separate from their lives and how they moved and how they lived. And they believed that they were offered complete forgiveness in those pagan religions. So maybe they're borrowing the notion from them. It must have been very easy for them to just begin to focus on the number of offerings, the type of offerings, and the procedure of the sacrifices while the worshiper is left to think and feel and do whatever they liked. This is like 700 years before Gnosticism, 800 years before Gnosticism, but it sounds very Gnostic. I'm going to do whatever I want with my life as long as the spiritual and physical stuff is separate. The problem is God won't bear with religious sin. In fact, it says he cannot. He won't bear and cannot bear with a religion or religious activity that leaves sin unchallenged and people unchanged and faithless. Man, I knew Isaiah was going to get uncomfortable for people. 
I knew it was going to be uncomfortable for me. And when I consider a statement like that and an observation like that is that God cannot bear with religious activity that leaves sin unchallenged and people unchanged and faithless. Turn to the book of Jeremiah. The only satellite I have for you today is in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7. It's your only satellite, so I'm conserving your energy for future sermons or something. Jeremiah, chapter 7. Jeremiah's ministry is 100 to 150 years later. Jeremiah actually was ministering when um, the Babylonian exile began. Jerusalem fell in 587 B.C. So this is 100, 150 years or so after Isaiah's message. Okay, To the same people, mind you. Okay, To Judah. To the same people that Isaiah preached to. So in some ways we have a chance to sort of look into their future, Isaiah's context, looking forward 100, 150 years to see if the people repented, to see how they responded to this message. I wish it was good news. But let's look, see what happens here in Jeremiah chapter 7. Look first at verses 21 through 26. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. The gist of the message was not about go offer a bunch of sacrifices. The gist of God's message to Israel was this. This command I gave them, obey my voice. I will be your God. You shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But here's the problem. They did not obey. They didn't incline their ear and they walked in their own counsels here 100 years, 150 years later. And their stubbornness of their evil hearts, and they went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. And going back to verse 24, they walked in their own counsels. Man, it's a bad deal. God's not okay with that. He's not okay with them offering up, adding up your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Add them all up. That's not what I've called you to. I've called you to obedience. But here's the problem of the people. Look over a few verses earlier. Look in verse 11. Here's the problem of the people. It says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. It's become a den of robbers in that robbers come into the house and robbers leave the house. They come in robbers and they leave robbers. Unchanged, unaffected by the worship that was to transform them while they were about it. That's why it's a den of robbers because that's what happens in robbers' dens. The robber comes in and the robber leaves. Still a robber. And here's the problem. It's right here in this passage as well. Look all the way forward back, excuse me, at verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That was their talisman. 
Here, 150 years later, they're still treating the sacrificial system, and in this case, the temple, like their talisman, their golden talisman. I'm going to live however I want. I'm going to walk according to the counsel of my own will. I'm not going to incline my ear or my heart to you. But oh, by the way, here's the talisman. See the temple? Smell the aroma of the burnt flesh that we're offering up? The problem is still the same a hundred-something years later. And it says, God, God says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Go back to Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 1. We're going to continue on in verse 16 and 17. Going back to the courtroom, we're going to look at what God tells the people in orange. God is going to call them to something. And then in the last few verses, he's going to invite them to something. These next couple of verses, we're just going to spend a few minutes on, just sort of looking at what's in here. In verse 16, he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. Each of those imperatives have to do with the relationship between the worshiper and God. And then there's some more imperatives that have to do with the relationship between the worshiper and other people. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. First of all, wash yourself, make yourselves clean. I'm going to spend just a moment telling, sharing with you what that is. They're not being called to do more sacrifices, more ritual cleansing. It's already clear that they have a multitude of those things. It's already clear they're doing all the prescribed washings and sacrificial stuff. He didn't see a gap in their agenda and their plans and say, oh, you need to just do more washings. When he says wash yourself and cleanse yourself, we had a beautiful picture of that this morning in baptism. It's a baptism of repentance is what he's talking about there. Wash yourselves and cleanse yourselves in repentance of how you've been moving. That's what he's calling them to when he says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, make yourselves clean. He's calling them to the same message that John the Baptist brought, a baptism of repentance. Go back and do those washings now, but do them with a different heart, a repentant heart for how you've been moving. The next imperative is cease to do evil. That's pretty straightforward. Learn to do good, pretty straightforward. Although it does imply that it's something that has to be learned, that it's not innate. And then the next one, seek justice. What that means is seek what God has judged to be right. Seek his rightness. And then that second list, it has to do with the community. Is correct oppression, care for orphans and widows, James, good religion, pure and undefiled religion right here. And these have to do with the care and concern for the needy among God's people. I love the flow of these imperatives because the first ones have to do with the vertical between God and the next ones have to do with the horizontal between other people. And it just sounds like the double love command. Love God and love people. A beautiful format and application of that. What seems to go with real heart engagement of God, what God is calling them to here, those in orange, is what seems to go with a real heart engagement of God in worship and a real enjoyment of God in worship is that they would, are, would have and should have become like Him. 
As they enjoyed him in worship, they should have and would have become like him, caring for the oppressed and the needy because that's what God did, caring for them when they were needy in Egypt. And as he has done that, we too care for the orphan and widow. What he's calling the people in orange to right here is he's calling them for personal transformation and for community transformation. You want to know what, you want to summarize the life of the worshiper is that you are transformed in a life of worship and that people around you are transformed as you're salty and bright and aromatic. Beautiful, beautiful calling. And I'll continue on in verse 18, this surprising invitation. Shocking invitation. What I'm expecting here, I'll, I'll go ahead and read the passage and I'll share with you what I'm expecting. Here's what actually goes down. The judge at the bench calls the one in orange. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What I'm expecting to hear at this point in the proceedings is I'm expecting the judge to say to the, the bailiff, get them out of here. Get them out of my sight until they actually go do these imperatives I've called them to do. Go do these things, get out of here, and then after you've done these things, then come back to me and we'll reason together and we'll work through what this passage, this reason word actually means dispute. We'll work through this dispute together. But instead, what happens here is this shocking invitation, first of all, to come, and it's softened by the word now. The imperative is come. It could be read as come here, but then the word now is Come now. This judge and father and God and holy God, the holy one of Israel, invites the ones in orange to the bench. Come now. A tender invitation. It sounds a lot to me, a lot like what we sang a few minutes ago. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the kind of God that we have. Man, that's good. What a wonderful God that still, with a rebellious and difficult people, invites them to come and reason with him. And then the scandal of it all, what he offers them is a full pardon. A full Pardon a crimson red sinful people. He offers a full pardon. Their sins are like scarlet. And he says, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I love that he chose snow and wool because they are by nature white. They don't have to be whitened up. Their nature is white. And this offering of this, this, this pardon is so profound that what he's saying is, I'm going to change your very nature. That's the kind of judge and God and Father that I am. 
something you have to appreciate in this passage is it's conditional. Somebody would just have to be stupid to not see that this is a conditional statement. In context, the way this passage unfolds, he says, though your sins are like scarlet, they could be white as snow. Contextually, this is what's about to go down. Though they're like scarlet, they could be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they could become like wool. And the word there is the word if. If they're repentant, if they're seeking forgiveness, if you are willing and obedient, it says at the beginning of verse 19, it is clearly a conditional statement. And it is betting on their repentance and real faith. And if they are willing, and not just willing, but actually obedient. Because you can be willing and disobedient. It's clearly a conditional statement that there are some serious blessings in store for them if they are repentant, if they are, if you want to use the word, washed in repentance. And if they are willing and they are obedient, there are blessings for that one who's washed and willing and obedient. And there are curses for the opposite. Curses for the rebellious. There's no forgiveness for unrepentant and disobedient people. Period. There's no forgiveness for the unrepentant. There's no cleansing pardon for them. But what's promised here is that they will be devoured by the sword. In Jeremiah's lifetime, toward the end of his ministry, they prove it. As Babylon rolls in and destroys Jerusalem. Man, I can imagine the worshipers in Isaiah's time hearing these things. The ones who trampled the courts on high attendance Sabbaths, one right after another. The ones who marched their fat ram in for sacrifice. Who thought, I'm sure, they must have believed that they were being faithful. But yet were not doing what he called them to do. And not being what he called them to be as their hearts were far from him, and as they didn't incline their ear or obey, as they walked in their own counsels, it says in Jeremiah, and as they came in robbers and left as robbers, holding up their talisman, this is the temple. I told you we'd come back to this little cane. I think in some ways their worship would be like someone using this cane who's not blind. That make you mad? Makes me mad. Maybe because of dad. I'd kick their butts boy, with the stick, with the cane. <laughs> but imagine how, it's got to be unsavory you to think about somebody that might carry one of these things around for the few blessings they might experience, maybe in Europe. <laughs> Get in the museums for free. Hey, look. Then they're reading all the signs. <laughs> Man, that's unsavory. That's like somebody parking in a handicapped spot that has their full faculties. That makes me mad. <laughs> and that's what they were doing, is tantamount to using this cane and not being blind. And here he's not encouraging them, chunk the cane, get rid of the cane. He's encouraging them, be blind. Be a needy people that are dependent on the God of that cane. That are needing that sucker 
to live and walk and move and get through the day. Don't get rid of the cane. Don't get rid of the sacrificial system at this point. That's not the encouragement in Isaiah. Don't pitch it. Be blind. Be dependent. Be needy. I just really have one thought for application this morning. As I'm thinking through what this has to do with us, I mean, we've got to do that. That's fair. Otherwise, it's just kind of a Bible study as we just kind of leave it back there. Bible studies should consider that, ask that question, but especially in a sermon, we've got to ask the question, is this, is this going to equip God's people with something? And I'm asking the question, if a 2,700-year-old courtroom, if there's anything that took place in there that we should consider, should we consider that we too could be guilty of using religious activities like a talisman while our hearts are far from him and while we're really just living according to the counsel of our own wills. I thought it might be helpful for us to consider that we have more in common with these old 27-year-old, 2,700-year-old worshipers than you might realize. We both have a sacrifice to offer. Now, they had a bunch of them. We just have one. But we both have a sacrifice. We both have the potential of offering it heartlessly, like a talisman, like an immunity idol. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. It might go down for us like, this is my offering. Here you go, God. <laughs> Doesn't matter what I, how I live my life this week. Here's my offering. This is my attendance record. This is my tattered Bible. Look how marked up it is, Jesus. The silly things we can hold on to. Look at my charity, God. This is my ministry, God, holding it out there like a talisman. We can be guilty of the same thing while we really walk in our own counsels, coming in as robbers and leaving as robbers. Both the worshiper then and the worshiper now have promises of salvation if they're repentant. The promises of salvation for them were more temporal. They dealt with real physical things like you're going to eat the good of the land is what it says there. You're going to be protected from the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians. I'm going to protect you physically. Like I'm going to wipe out armies. Like real physical and temporal promises of salvation. The good of the land, peace and protection. For us, the promises are like John 10.10. 10. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Man, he's made some good salvation promises to us. Eternal life. Both the worshipers then and the worshipers now are called to obedience. That wasn't just an Old Testament notion. Think about how it went down in the Old Testament. They're liberated from Egypt. Ransomed, redeemed, rescued. We can use lots of words there that all happen in the Exodus. 
They crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. The New Testament tells us they were baptized into Moses is the language that's used. Okay, they're redeemed, they're baptized, and where do they go next? Sinai. <laughs> Sinai, thankfully, wasn't in front of redemption from Egypt. Or nobody would have ever been redeemed or rescued, right? Isn't that delightful? Don't you enjoy that order? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad Sinai came next. But Sinai's still there. The ransomed and the washed are called to obey. It's what God's people do. And the same is true for us, for this worshiper here and now. We too have been ransomed, redeemed, saved, and we are baptized like Trinity this morning. And we are called to obedience. Our Sinai is a Sermon on the Mount. It's not the only thing, but it's a beautiful picture of it. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say, hey, forget all that junk over there at Sinai. What he says over and over again at, on the Sermon on the Mount is that you've heard it said this is murder. Let me show you what's actually murder. You've heard it said this is adultery. Let me show you what's actually adultery. He doesn't say forget Sinai. He says, here's your Sinai, my people. Obey this. Man, I was thinking of the Great Commission. How does the Great Commission go down in Matthew, at the end of Matthew? What is the order of events there in the Great Commission? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Obedience is part of it. It's not just some sort of ancient Old Testament notion that now we're on a sort of a different program. The worshiper was called to obedience then. The worshiper is called to obedience now. Obedience then was never by works or performance. So hopefully you're seeing that today in Isaiah. Otherwise, God wouldn't have had a problem with them because their performance was fine. They had all the rituals just down pat. But there was no faith. It was faithless. The message has always been, it was then for salvation, is trust and obey. And that's the message now. Trust and obey. Just like the old song. We sung it here one day. I started kind of singing it, and everybody joined in. I don't have the guts to try that again. But you were here. You know what I'm talking about. We all sung it together. It was the weirdest moment, but it was cool. <laughs> trust and obey because there's no other way. Salvation has never been by works or performance. Never. So what's different for us now? If we have all this in common with the Old Testament worshiper, with the ancient worshiper from 2,700 years ago, what's different for us now? Okay, here are a few things, briefly. Their sacrifice was temporary and inferior. Okay, that's what God gave them. But compared to our sacrifice, that one was temporary and inferior. Our sacrifice, though, is eternal and superior and we'll never, ever, 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 ever need another one. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, he'd done. <laughs> the sacrificial system was over. No more sacrifices. 
Those worshipers needed to offer a bunch of them, a bunch of them but we only have one, and ours is eternal and superior. Theirs left them in pretty good standing for a time, sort of. Okay, but ours, on the other hand, has left us in perfect standing for all time. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The crimson and scarlet that you and I walked in before Christ has now officially been made wool and snow. The nature has been changed altogether. Is that good news? It should be, man. Their sacrifices were offered in, in faith. It wasn't about procedure. The proof here is in Isaiah. And our sacrifice is to be offered in faith with heart engaged, not just holding up your talisman. Looky here. I got my cane, but I'm not really blind. We are to offer this sacrifice that we enjoy together as a people that are washed in repentance as a people that are willing to obey him, and not just willing with a bunch of words, yeah, I think I'm going to do that, but actually obedient. Willing and obedient. We are not to treat him like a talisman. While our ear is not inclined, while we're not willing to obey and not pursuing obedience, and while we're, not walking, or while we're walking in our own counsels. That's not faith. He is not your immunity idol for tribal counsel. He's not your insurance policy. You just pull out when you've had a fender bender. Greenville needs to hear that. Is it, I mean, anybody work with Greenville? Anybody, live else, anybody else live in Greenville? <laughs> Man, do you know you've just been equipped for something? To engage your neighbor and your friend and your workmate and your, your cousin or whoever else, your, you know, your, your grandparents or your grandkids or whoever else is in our community, whoever else that you're walking with that might be treating him like he's a talisman. You've been equipped this morning to show lovingly otherwise because that kind of religion, he cannot endure. You come in a robber and you leave a robber with that kind of view. Lastly, their sacrifice well offered, meant they'd eat the good of the land. Sacrifice for us, though, well offered, means that we are eating of eternal life. We eat it every week. What a beautiful, beautiful time to lead into the supper. As we consider that Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The good of the land was just temporary for that meal. That meal for that time was just temporary. But what we have in our sacrifice, man, it's eternal. But you have to know that we can eat it faithlessly. The Corinthians did. And Paul said, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating. If anybody wonders if a New Testament Christian has the potential of moving in the way that the people did in the time of Isaiah, look at the Corinthian church who are taking the Lord's Supper and it's not even the Lord's Supper. They're instead of eating the Lord's Supper, they're eating judgment on themselves. If you wonder if the potential there is potential for any of us. Now, now that I've made you all nervous, we're going to pass out the supper here in just a moment. And one of the things I invite you to do in this supper this week, 
is not to take it as a golden talisman. Not to take it as something that's just going to look, God, here's my supper. See how I ate the supper. But to take it as a washed and willing and obedient worshiper. And enjoy, not if you fail, but when you fail, that you are covered and clothed in his righteousness. That should make that meal all the sweeter. I'll share one passage with you before we pass out the elements from Isaiah. I shared last week a passage in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to share another one this week from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11 says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. And here's a key word. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Grab that word, delight. God speaking here. He says, I do not delight in the blood of lambs or bulls or goats. Now, in Isaiah chapter 53, it's sort of obscured in my version because the English Standard Version doesn't use the word delight. But in Hebrew, it's here. You might have another version that actually says it. Listen to what it says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief. That word will is the same word that's used over there in Isaiah chapter 1 for delight. The father did not delight in the blood of lambs or bulls or goats. But he delighted to crush his son for you. He delighted in that. And he delighted in that sacrifice. It was enough. It was sufficient. Man, I hope that stirs you to take this meal, delighting in Him as a worshiper and not like a talisman. Let me pray and we'll distribute the elements. God, I'm thankful for this courtroom imagery. I'm thankful for what transpired last week and this week. I'm thankful for all the details of seeing you as not only father, but also judge. And seeing you as the Holy One of Israel, who will be consistently just and holy. And then also seeing at the same time where you are going to make a way for a few survivors called a remnant. And then seeing you invite the ones in orange to the bench to reason together. And what you offer is full pardon. That is truly, truly scandalous. It would have been scandalous for the nation of Israel just in a temporary sense. But to consider for us that it is offered and given and administered for eternity is wonderfully good news. God, I pray that we can together enjoy this. That we cannot, or that we will be overwhelmed with who Christ is and what He's done for us and what You've done for us in Him. That we will enjoy Him not just as people who are going through the motions, who are trampling courts, but as people whose hearts are quickened week by week by people who are working at worship as they walk together as part of each other's lives in life group or as families. 
as people who are relentlessly working through life's problems, holding on to Jesus and not pulling him out just as an insurance policy. God, I confess we are blind. I just pray we'll know it. I pray we'll walk in that blindness, needing what you've given us as we walk with you, leaning on you as we give our offering joyfully, enjoying you as we offer our song wholeheartedly, attending worships, not worship gatherings, not as a talisman, but because you've given us this as an opportunity. You've given us this as a means to equip us to walk with you. You've given us this as a way to stir us up by way of reminder what we have in Christ. God, I pray that all these things, we won't pitch the cane. I just pray we'll be blind. God, right now I pray that we can take this supper delighting in Christ. Delighting in ultimately that we've been called to obedience. We will... We are measured by and will ever be measured by Christ's obedience. That is seriously good news. We love you, Lord. We're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.